This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome NBC and Golf Channel analyst, golf course architect, and, and this gentleman also wears about a million other hats, it seems, these days, and I'm super excited to have Mark Rolfing on the Sub-70 podcast. Mark, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Jason. Uh, it's been a little bit overdue, I think, by now, so probably a lot for you and I to talk about today. Well, my first one uh, has to be, how did... Uh, a guy growing up in DeKalb, Sycamore area of Illinois, uh, wind up becoming Mr. Hawaii in the golf world. How did how did you wind up from the cornfields over to the to the beautiful oceans of Hawaii? You know, I think it was just fate more than anything else. Um, I had dreams like so many young kids in Illinois, whether it's baseball, football, basketball. Uh, mine mine were golf and. Uh, you know, I got to be a pretty good high school player and then uh, even better in college and pretty soon thought I was going to be the next Jack Nicklaus. And uh, that just was never going to be the case, but you couldn't convince me of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I finally, after batting it around the tours of Europe and Asia and all over the world and starting and stopping on the PGA Tour, I finally kind of packed it in and said, you know what, I'm not good enough. And, um had played in the Hawaiian Open in 1976 and uh, kind of liked Hawaii and met a girl that I, I also kind of liked. And we went out there for a little vacation and basically never left. When you're living in Hawaii, like, you know, there's always this misconception of, I think, a little bit of, you know, can you get island fever quickly, that kind of thing. What, what did you kind of notice from living in the Midwest or in the, the mainland and going to the island of what maybe some of those uh, – biggest differences are in, you know, obviously you love it. What, what did you find the most joy about living in Hawaii? I guess is what I'm asking versus, you know, where you sort of grew up, which is also a wonderful place, but there's got to be a, a difference of culture, uh, the whole nine yards, I would have to imagine. Yeah, I, you know, I think at first, uh, now you got to remember, we were in the 70s back then, so really no internet. And yes, when you went to Hawaii, you really got away from things. Uh, you know, people weren't going out there on a regular basis to visit friends of mine or things like that so it really was getting away i think more than anything else i fell in love with the ocean i fell in love with the sea maybe growing up in cornfields of dekalb illinois and and being sort of landlocked uh you know we would get to lake michigan maybe once a year um i just was infatuated with the whole sea and ocean and um, kind of fell in love with it. And I had no dreams at that point of sort of reconnecting uh, with the golf world in terms of television. There was just, you know, back then, if you were a major champion, you might have a chance to be a golf analyst on a network, but not really a very big one. The analysts were Ken Venturi at CBS and Lee Trevino at NBC and uh, Arnold Palmer did a little bit of work. Jack Nicklaus worked for ABC at the time. So if you hadn't won a bunch of majors, you had no chance. So I literally, when I went out there, I was done playing and kind of fell in love with Hawaii and figured I would sort of let the chips fall where they may out there. You touched on this a little bit, you know, of, of playing professional golf and, you know, playing around the world. What were those tours like in the in the 70s, you know, early 80s when you were making your, you know, start in the professional game? You had to come across some interesting characters playing those tours back in those days. It had to be Looking back, has to be quite a oh, uh, was a traveling circus at some level when you're playing the European tour in that period of time and in over in Australia. Yeah, it really in, was. Yeah. yeah, I I had about thirty guys that I played the whole European tour two years. There were about thirty Americans uh, that traveled. Um, the year after, we had a really good Walker Cup team in '75, and a bunch of those guys had waited to turn pro. Uh, and didn't go to the Q school in 75. So the next year they played Europe. And um, that was kind of the Gary Coke, um, Andy Bean. Oh, there was just a lot of really good players uh, that were in that group. Uh, Jerry Pate was in the group. And um, 
you know, it, it was really fun. There were two ways that you could try to get better if you were a pro back then. And that was you could either play the mini tours, which I did some. I played Arizona and Southern California, primarily mini tours. Or you could play the world tours, uh, of which you had to qualify to get on them. Uh, but it was more like I, I felt like getting myself ready for the big tour if I could play in national opens. Like in Asia, in a 10-week stretch, I think I played in maybe seven or eight national championships. They weren't huge back then, but you were still playing in the Malaysian Open or the Indonesian Open or the Philippines Open, and it had a little more of a sense of being real tournament, and, and I thought I had a better chance of improving if, if I went that route. It was a hard way to make a living, but taught me a lot about myself and, and more than anything made me realize I just wasn't quite good enough. I got in a position a couple of times, you know, to maybe win or, or do pretty well. And I just didn't have it coming down the stretch. I knew it. You still play a lot of golf today? I don't play as much as I used to. I had a really bad cancer a few years ago that uh, knock on wood, I beat. And um, it was, it was a tough fight. Uh, the prognosis was not good. It was a head and neck cancer. And uh, it's kind of, it's sort of inhibited my mobility a little bit. I had to have a major surgery, my left jaw, shoulder area. I don't make much of a turn anymore. Uh, Typical what you hear from guys, oh, you know, I don't play that much or my body aches or whatever. But I'm probably a good five or six handicap now. And that's, you know, that's likely to be what I'm going to be probably for the rest of my life. I'll bet my swing speed's about 90 miles an hour and that's it. Well, you can still get out and enjoy the game, right? As a five handicap, like it's absolutely, still absolutely. Fun. Play the right tee box. It's a, it's a, you know, you can still. It's such a great game that you can play it your whole life, you know, and and still enjoy it, even though you don't play as well as you once did. Still, nothing better than getting out there for a few hours and and, and and playing golf and seeing the ocean if you're in Hawaii and enjoying it, right? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. No, and you know the thing is, Jason, I see so many guys and women. Uh, that just have expectations that are too high when they go out on a golf course. It is a very difficult game. And most amateurs are not as good as they think they are. They don't take enough club, you know, when they're hitting shots into the greens. They hardly ever get the ball pin high. Their short games aren't nearly as good as they could be. Uh, That's an area where they could improve. And yet they go out and they don't perform the way they want, and then they're unhappy. And they should really keep things in perspective and – and create standards that are achievable and goals that are achievable. And that's sort of what I've done now. Yeah, every time I go out and play, it doesn't matter what I shoot, I'm just happy to be out there playing. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, projects you're working on uh, golf course-wise. I know um, the changes that the, the Court Crenshaw is making to the Kapalua Resort with the Plantation Golf Course. Uh, what, what prompted you guys to kind of go back and, and take a look at that course and see what Bill and, and Ben could do to improve it? I thought it was a great track. I was fortunate enough to play it. I went over there for my honeymoon. It was fantastic. Um, but I'm assuming it's going to be even better once you guys are kind of uh, done sort of assessing it and having those guys come and kind of touch up their masterpiece a little bit there. Yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing process. I went around it this past Monday uh the improvements are basically done. Uh, the grass is all planted. And what, what prompted us to do it is the fact that it's 30 years old. If you can imagine, it just doesn't seem possible. Uh, but the plantation course is 30 years old. So the grass was getting a little tired. Uh, and, you know, frankly, we're going through a little bit of a climate change out there in Hawaii. Um, and it could be cyclical, but um, the course has changed over the years. It's gotten softer. There's much more rain. Uh, than we've had in the past, so it's wetter out there. And uh, what happened was the course became, in some ways, too easy for the best players in the world at the Tournament of Champions. They just shoot lights out. Uh, But because it softened up and it it plays so short now for them, uh, that actually makes it play longer uh, for the average player. So it got harder for the recreational golfers. So what we really tried to do in this uh, restoration was make it so that it became easier for the recreational golfer and harder uh, for the best players in the world. And and the way to do that, Bill and Ben felt like, was to soften up the greens a little bit, calm them down, not have quite so many tough contours. Uh, and, And that's where the average golfer has the most trouble on those greens. And then we created a whole new set of teeing areas and challenges for the best players in the world. And 
it was a great experience. Uh, we had the same, obviously, Bill and, and Ben, uh, but I was kind of the the glue that uh, helped Troon Golf, who manages Kapalua, and they do a great job there, kind of helped them get the group back together. And we literally had a guy by the name of Jimbo Wright, who built a number of the original plantation course greens, uh, came back 30 years later to work on them again. Jeff Bradley, who did the ba- uh, bunkers 30 years ago, was there. Uh, we had two guys that just finished a renovation at Winter Park in Orlando, Keith Reb and Riley Johns, golf course architects themselves. They were actually on the shapers. It was like an all-star renovation crew. And I think you are going to see some of the most dramatic results you've ever seen in a renovation. It is going to be spectacular when you tune in in January. I'm assuming, too, they also put some uh, tee boxes to make the holes a little bit shorter for the for the guests that can come there for the resort. Sort of we were talking about how it seems like in this, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, a lot of golf courses got really, really difficult for the average player. And it's nice to see, like, what's happening in Winter Park, and I'm assuming you guys probably did this there as well, to have some tee boxes for people to play the appropriate tees for their ability and how far they hit the golf ball. And I'm, I'm assuming that's expanded out as well. It really has. I, I would think of all the mistakes that I made in the original planning of the course, I totally overlooked, um, you know, the shorter recreational hitters. Uh, and some of those holes, the difference between the championship tees and the forward tees was probably only 40 or 50 yards, which, um, you know, on a massive hole of 663, let's say like the 18th, is, is minimal. Uh, so, yes, we have... I'm going to say not quite half the holes, but almost half the holes created new areas. Um, And, you know, the other thing is, again, when the course opened, it played very firm and fast. You could roll the ball down those fairways, but it has softened up so much that there just is not the roll that you used to get out there. And uh, consequently, it's forced us to go forward. And we even have gone forward with a championship tee at 18. Because there was a year in the Tournament of Champions, uh, the Century Tournament of Champions, two years ago, where not a player in the field in 72 holes reached the green in two shots, which is almost unheard of on that hole. And so, literally, after going back, I think, four or five times, building new tees further back, further back, further back over the 30 years, we finally had to build one further forward. I think it's good for golf overall. I really do. Like I said, the guys who did the sculpting at Winter Park, I mean, I haven't played it yet, but I've heard... You know, that's, that's, it's spectacular and that nails it, right? And you can, I mean, I, I think, you know, being in the golf business myself, I, I love to see that trend line happening of making a little more width off the tee and having the right tee boxes for people to enjoy it. I think it shouldn't be a torturous four and a half hours. It should be fun. It's okay making a couple of birdies and pars. Think about this, Jason. If, If you think about really, the, the issues, the challenges that you and I and everybody in the golf industry face, even the people that only participate in the golf industry, the challenges are the game is too, too difficult, particularly for beginning golfers. It takes too long and it costs too much. And one of the components that has added to all three of those issues and created problems in all three of those areas is the length of the golf course. Uh, it takes longer to play. It costs more money to maintain bigger spaces. Um, and consequently, you have to pass that, that along to the consumer. It makes the game more difficult. They're shooting higher scores. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm all for starting to scale back this whole need for length. I really don't think uh, you do. And just, just take a look at how great Pebble Beach played in this U.S. Open this Absolutely. year. And just just like Marion. I mean, you know, look, look at the scores. Everybody's shot Everybody thought they'd shoot 15 under at Marianne at that U.S. Open, and, you know, it was even par. So um, length is something we really have to, to take into consideration going forward, especially if you're building a new golf course. Well, another project I know I read about you working on, which I think is just fascinating, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but is the little nine-holer called the Cayuca Golf Course, which from the pictures, looks like it has just fantastic bones, has like a Lynx look to it, which I absolutely love Lynx golf. How's that project coming along? And, and once again, that's sort of one of those golf courses for everyone to play. It's manageable. I, I love the backstory of trying to bring that little thing to, you know, to life a little bit more and kind of get more people participating out there with it. Yeah, so the, the name of the place is Kahuku, um, and it's on the north shore of Oahu. I will tell you this. 
I believe that Kahuku is the best remaining golf course site in America. And I'm talking about mainland, east coast, west coast, you know, interior of the country. I, I believe this is the best site remaining. Uh, it's remote on that island, yes, but uh, it is totally sand-based. Um, there's almost a mile and a half of oceanfront there, and there's a little nine-hole course there right now. It was built back in the late 30s by the plantation workers out there, and it's just a fascinating little nine holes. There's no irrigation system uh, at all, so it's a little bit scruffy, but it actually plays very nicely. Um, I think the total staff, accounting maintenance and pro shop, of which it's just a little trailer kind of thing, is five. Um, you know, the, for the local people there, they if they can buy a ticket, um, a pass that costs them nine dollars uh, around out there now, and I think visitors is maybe in mid twenties. Uh, but you know, those kind of places these days are not really sustainable anymore. Um, it's very difficult, you know, with with that low a revenue base to have a nine hole course that's sustainable, and it's owned by the city and county of Honolulu. And they're losing money, and just like every other city in America, whether it's Seattle or it was the case in Orlando before they renovated Winter Park, uh, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to keep losing money? They can't can't afford to do it. And so I think there are going to have to be some upgrades out of Kahuku. Uh, I think there's plenty of room if you wanted to add more holes, uh, but just a little finishing work, um, kind of returning it to the links that originally was built there. Uh, because it is total links land, and um, every hole is, you know, right on the ocean. Uh, it's just a, it's a puzzle that I haven't quite solved yet, but one that I'm going to. This, this is probably uh, the project of them all, including the big one in Chicago. I think Kahuku has the most sentiment for me. I, I really want to try and figure out how that works, because to me, that is a microcosm of golf right now. If we can't make that work, I think the game in general is in trouble. Well, I was going to get to the uh, Chicago stuff, but uh, I'll still start off with uh, golf in Chicago. And, you know, besides Kishwaukee Country Club and DeKalb, which is a fantastic track where I'm very proud to be a member and have been for a long time, uh, A, what makes Chicago such a great golf city? And then B, what are, you know, your two or three favorites to go play that uh, when you get back here that you, you try to get out and go and see? Well, let me say this. Chicago, and, and I'm biased. I'll be the first to admit it. I'm biased. But Chicago is the greatest golf town in America, period. Um, I suppose Philadelphia could argue the same. Maybe Boston, you might hear. I, I don't know. But to me, it's not even really close. Chicago's had 13 U.S. Opens, which is a lot of U.S. Opens. But the most amazing thing about that, Jason, is that of those 13 U.S. Opens, they played on eight different courses in Chicagoland which shows you the depth of the quality of the courses. Um, are we going to have another U.S. Open in Chicago? I don't know. The problem is the facilities in Chicago just aren't that big. Uh, they aren't big enough to handle a U.S. Open in today's world, but that doesn't at all take away from the quality of the courses. Um, you know, I, I I love the north side. I've been a north side Chicago guy my whole life. I like it way, way, way north up there. Shore Acres is one of my favorite, but um, you've got a little area down there in Lake Forest with Onwensia and Knollwood and Conway Farms, and you've probably got three or four courses right in there, you know, that might have the quality of golf holes that could host a U.S. Open. And uh, really, all of Chicago, the western suburbs, I, I played out at Medina a week ago Monday in the Robbie Gold Celebrity uh, Fundraiser out there. I, you know, I just, I love that. And I still can't get over what happened in that Ryder Cup in 2012. Every time I play the course now, I I just am shocked that America lost that thing. I don't know how we did. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of great Western suburban courses. I wish Butler National would uh, invite a woman to be a member of that club because I think they could host the U.S. Open again. Um, and then the Southwest side, I played a lot of junior golf in the Chicago uh, District Golf Association events and and loved those courses down, you know, Olympia Fields and Idlewild and Flossmore and um, just a number of courses in that area that are just phenomenal. So it's it's got variety. Um, 
you know, really the only weak area in Chicago when it comes to quality golf is is downtown. The the outside of the apple is shiny and bright. It's the core of the apple that's a little bit stale. Uh, and that's why we decided to start working on the project at Jackson Park. Well, that flows perfectly into my next question. Um, what a cool concept with, with the project that's going on and working with President Obama and Tiger Woods. You know, it's pretty amazing. How, how did you get involved um, and how is the process coming at this point in time and when do you potentially see the facility being open? Well, I got involved literally uh, as much as anything because of my cancer. I was uh, I had my surgery at the University of Chicago Hospital and it was right fairly soon after the Ryder Cup was in Chicago and uh, uh, the hospital was right down there on Jackson Park Golf Course. And even though I grew up in Chicago and I had never played Jackson Park and I didn't even know the South Shore Golf Course was there, and I started snooping around and getting interested and tried to figure out why in the middle of August there weren't a lot of kids playing golf. Nobody was playing golf there, and the courses were kind of ratty, and I, I just felt like, wow, I, this, this ought to, you know, pique my interest a little bit, and it did, and uh, frankly, there was a number of things that happened along the way that were pretty interesting. Um, you know, one was the Obama pre- presidential center once it got decided that was going to be on Jackson Park which is effectively his home course and he's going to move back to Hyde Park here in a couple of years um and so you know that that gave a real jolt of energy to wow maybe we can really change this community uh and the the golf course literally is the front yard of where that presidential center is going to be uh i had put together a totally different plan for Jackson and South Shore which literally uh, was going to be more of just a, a smaller restoration to try and get the courses so they were sustainable. Uh, they really needed some significant upgrading and pretty much had decided that it was going to be Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw to do that. Um, and what we're really thinking about a tournament or, you know, a president's cup or who knows what. And all of a sudden, one day I get this call from uh, Mark Steinberg, Tiger's agent, saying that President Obama had called him up to talk to him about Jackson Park. And the conversation was something like, hey, Tiger, do you know this guy, Mark Rolfing? Tiger said, yeah, I know Mark Rolfing. known him for 25 years, for 20 years. And he said, why? And he said, well, he's doing something up in Chicago with my golf course here. Do you know anything about that? And, and uh, I, I laughed when I heard that he referred to it as his golf course, which is a good thing. Anyway, he basically said to Tiger, I think you should be the architect of this thing, so you better call Mark up and figure out how you guys can work together on this thing and to shorten the story up. He basically did, came up, I think he came six days later to visit, which is pretty unusual for him, fell in love with it. He wondered where the kids were too. Um, You know, we knew there were some huge challenges. You had to connect the two courses, which means an underpass under Lakeshore Drive. Uh, We needed three under three underpasses total uh, that had to be approved in a state budget, but that all came together through the presidential center and the need for infrastructure for that, for the community. So it basically wasn't just, you know, building underpasses to improve the golf. And um, I think we are almost there. Uh, I would say, you know, there's a really, really good chance we'll be under construction next year. That's the plan. Uh, I don't think fundraising is going to be an issue. We've got some tremendous um, support right now. Mike Kaiser, who is my partner at Sand Hills, and, of course, is Band and Dunes and Dunes Club and a number of very, very famous courses around the world is is pretty much our lead partner here, and he's kind of our guiding light. And uh, it's all coming together. And I think by 2022, people are going to be playing golf on an improved and combined South Shore and Jackson Park. You know, and it's interesting with Tiger's architectural work, but it's been, you know, really well regarded. Like what he did at Blue Jack National outside of Houston, you know, it looks absolutely, you know, fantastic. And the reviews have been great of, you know, him as an architect. And he hasn't done that many courses yet, but so far it's been really, really good. What what kind of course are you guys looking at building? Would it be a traditional Parkland-style golf course? Is there any sort of a theme, you know, because there's some holes in the water? What, what sort of overall vibe will the course sort of have, or how does Tiger see it from a architectural standpoint? You know, I don't think there's a theme in terms of the character of the course other than playable. It has to be something that's playable. Uh, you know, the, the users 
the golfers in that area for the most part are not great. Uh, you know, there's a lot of diversity there, a lot of minorities, a lot of senior citizens play. Uh, and so the number one goal Tiger has had from the beginning when he looked at it was I, I got to figure out how to make these holes playable. There's actually a few holes out there now that are too difficult that are not playable. On the other hand, South Shore has this opportunity to build three or four truly amazing, spectacular lakefront holes in an urban area in America, which is just unheard of. So uh, the overall theme is going to be playability, but the character of the courses is going to change between South Shore, uh, which is going to be lakefront, almost all of that lakefront, and then you're going to go under the underpass, uh, under Lakeshore Drive, and you're going to come out at what is now Jackson Park, and then all the way from there up to uh, Cornell Avenue, which is where the Presidential Center is going to be, that's all pretty much parkland. So it's going to have two completely different feels to it. Would the goal be to eventually have a PGA Tour event there, and that would be kind of the host site to have it in the city of Chicago? Is that sort of the you know, overall goal of, yes, you want it playable for the, the, the people who live there, but gosh, having a tour event in Chicago would be like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I think, I think it would. You know, there's a couple of, of uh, discussions that are going on. One is the BMW Championship, which is no longer going to be BMW. They're looking for a sponsor, and I think they will find one. But, you know, the thought there would be, it, it, I think it would be cool to continue to rotate that around Chicagoland. So maybe you went up to the north, you know, one time up to north side like Conway, where they played three times, I think, um, west. Uh, which they're doing this year at Medina Southwest, which they're doing next year at Olympia, and then maybe one time downtown at Jackson Park. Uh, but I also think there's a number of other events uh, that would be attractive, particularly for that site. And the one that comes to mind first for everybody is the President's Cup, because you've got the President of the United States, you've got the captain, you know, and arguably the greatest player of all time, Tiger Woods. Uh, he's the captain of the President's Cup this year. How How can we not be thinking about a President's Cup. And really, when you look at this site, it's very much like Liberty National, where they had the last President's Cup in the U.S., although, uh, believe it or not, Jackson Park and South Shore is much bigger uh, because there's an entire park around it. Liberty National is a pretty tiny site. But because Jackson Park is so big, it was big enough to have the World's Fair, uh, we literally feel like you're going to be able to have the World's Fair of Golf there if you want. You, you don't have to build it all on the golf course itself. You've got the entire park you could use, let's say, during a President's Cup or some tournament like that. That would be – I can't fathom – you know, for the city of Chicago and all the – you know, everyone's such huge sports fans around here. President Obama kind of adopted son into this area. Can you imagine the energy that would be there for a President's Cup? in that, in I think that it would be, yeah, it would It'd be amazing it would and you know i think it would be a game changer for that community you know we've seen what happened in atlanta with the east lake uh, foundation and the whole uh initiative by tom cousins down there that literally changed that community and uh i think the same thing can happen at at jackson park um, golf has an amazing way of changing people's views of things and uh just giving uh, particularly kids the opportunity to go out there and play. And one of the big decisions that was made as part of this is that children under the age of 17 or kids now uh, can play golf free anywhere on any one of the Chicago Park District courses. That's one of the first things that Tiger said. Let's let the kids play some free golf. Uh, you know, not on Tuesday afternoon with your parents or not, you know, after 4 o'clock on Wednesday or whatever it is. Uh, any time, any place under 17 is free. I, I think that's going to be a game changer. Yeah, I love it. One last Tiger question. Like, you've been around professional golf for a long time and, and have seen all of the greats. Did you ever see, after everything Tiger had gone through physically, emotionally, the whole nine yards, did you ever think he would be back to the level of consistency he got back to winning on the PGA Tour? And then did you ever think he could ever win another major again when you saw how hurt he was physically and all the surgeries etc cetera, etc cetera. was that ever on your radar no it, it really wasn't i think the the word it hit me the hardest was at tory pines because i walked with him 
I think, 36 of the 72 holes uh, in that U.S. Open in 2008. And then, of course, I covered the playoff on Monday with Rocco and uh, Tiger. And I could hear I could hear his knee. I could hear his leg. It was like crunching. Um, it, it was the strangest thing. And just watching him and seeing the pain that was in and seeing the way he had to change the way he played. Uh, he just simply couldn't get through the shots. He had to stand up on it and hit these sort of cut shots that he knew he wasn't going to turn the ball right to left. It was going to be kind of a baby fade and probably end up in the right rough. Uh, but he was in so much pain, I thought that he's never, ever going to be able to recover from this. And, um, you know, I, I knew, Jason, that uh, if all the stars aligned, he could win maybe the Masters again. I, I felt like that would be the major if he was going to win one. Uh, but I just I also knew how hard it was for the stars to align because these majors, um, you know, are getting tougher and tougher to win. You got some dominant players like Kepka who seems to win all of them now. And then you've got, you know, a group of players that haven't even won one yet that are so good. You can't believe that Matt Kuchar hasn't won a major or Ricky Fowler. So I think the majors are just going to get harder and harder to win. And that's why I was, I was really kind of thinking Tiger wouldn't do it. I always thought too, with the start, stop, start, stop, right. Where he would play a few events, another injury off six months, another surgery. I just thought as good as these young players are, and he's going to be in his forties, it's just not going to happen. I mean, I would have bet good money. He could have put all the effort in. He's just not going to be physically able to do it. And boy, was I wrong. Like, I think his golf swing looks fantastic right now. It's it's the craziest thing I've ever seen from a golfer who I thought truly was never going to be able to play at a championship level again. I mean, coming back, looking 10 years younger, and the golf swing looks like he can control the ball and hit it both ways now. It's it's truly the most remarkable thing I've ever seen of uh I, I would have bet good money he never could beat the level of competition that's out there now, and boy, was I wrong. It's uh, it's truly an amazing story. It really is. Yeah, I was wrong, too. I, I still believe it's the greatest comeback in sports history, any sport. Um, what amazed me was when he came back, I had said if he comes back, he's going to have to come back playing a different kind of game. He is not going to overpower courses. He's not going to. Uh, be able to play with these kids tee to green the way he used to be able to play. And sure enough, he comes out and he's swinging 128 miles an hour. You know, he's ranked second in club head speed on the PGA Tour for a few months there. And he's just, you know, driving the ball a mile. But it really didn't work. I mean, it showed us signs of life. It showed us how much he wanted to play again and everything else. But he very quickly realized that he needed to gear back if he wanted to be the most efficient in being able to play a lot, well, for him a lot, not a lot for a lot of players, but uh, he needed to gear back a little, and he's done that now, and the swing speed has has slowed down, uh, and everything is under control, and the swing looks as good as I've ever seen it. Uh, His iron game, I think, is nearly as good as it was at his peak. He's not nearly as good a putter as he was back then, and that's why you know he'll never uh, play the way he played back in, you know, 2000. But uh, it is remarkable to me what he's done. And I just wish everybody would kind of stop this, you know, is he going to break Nicholas's record now and all this? You know, he may win another major, he may not. Uh, But let's just enjoy what he did uh, because it really is remarkable. Hey, everyone. It's Jason at the Sub-70 Podcast. Just want to let everybody know that the Sub-70 699 irons are back in stock. Sorry about the delay, but uh, they sold out faster than we thought, but we do have inventory back in. If anyone needs fitting help or questions, feel free to reach out to us. We're always glad to help. And also our 639 MB and MB Plus blade irons are in stock as well. Two different versions. Uh, The original MB style will be a traditional blade, minimal offset, thinner top line, really, really workable, compact, definitely what the better players looking for uh, from ball control and workability. The MB Plus is a little bit of a bigger blade, still thin top line, little more offset, little more heel to toe, little more forgiveness built into it, but still the trajectory control that better players looking for uh, in a in a blade, but still some forgiveness mixed in with it. So it's sort of the perfect combination. Both are still uh, made from our DT4 soft steel, so you get that buttery forged feel with either set. 
Uh, thanks uh, again for listening. Hope you guys enjoy the uh, podcast with Rolf. And uh, without further ado, back to it. Well, speaking of major championships, we have another good one coming up here. My, my favorite of the year, the Open Championship. And it's so cool. It's coming to Royal Portrush. You know, it hasn't been there in, I think, what, since the 50s. Uh, so it has not been in the Rota. Uh, what are you hearing about the golf course? And what are you most excited to see in this uh, upcoming championship? I have been to Port Rush a few times uh, in that little stint that I worked for ABC back in the early 90s. I covered the uh, Senior British Open a couple of times at Port Rush. I really like it. Um, and, and I'm hearing that, um, you know, it's going to be quite a test. Uh, the interesting thing about it is I, the thing I love about golf is it's got these four major championships that all have their own personalities uh, and that are all so different. Uh, and, and, of course, the Masters, I, I think, is the greatest golf tournament in the world and, and really has a personality unlike any other sporting event. But to me, the Open Championship is the world championship of golf. It's got the history. Uh, it's got the international feeling to it. And, and to me, it is literally the world championship. And because of that, I think its place now as the fourth of the four majors is a really good spot. I love this new schedule. I love the way, you know, the PGA Championship, you know, brought golf to life in the North in May and, and you know, kind of made it so all 29,000 golf professionals and members of the PGA of America got the, the boost from the PGA Championship in May as opposed to August. I think, I think that's where the PGA belongs. I think the U.S. Open uh, is maybe going to start getting its personality back if the USGA allows it you know, to be our national championship and let the course be the story, not the setup of the course. So if all that works, uh, the crown to me now is going to be the open because it's the last of the four majors. We've got almost, what, eight months until another major championship comes up again uh, and no Ryder Cup this year. So um, I, I think it, it really has the makings of being a phenomenal event. Uh, and I know the players are really, really looking forward to it. I've talked to Rory about it. He was out there a couple of days ago. I saw practicing. Um, you know, they are really focusing on that one. Does, does the course favor one type of a, a player, in your opinion, from you being, in, you know, talking to the guys and then actually seeing the golf courses or a certain style of golfer, assuming you get the right weather conditions for your draw and all that good stuff? But is there any one type of player that you think, hey, this guy, you have this kind of profile as a professional golfer, this course is set up perfect for you? You know, yeah, you have to you have to understand how to play the ball along the ground. Uh, that, that is the biggest difference. Uh, you have to use the ground. I mean, Port Rush is Lynx golf at its absolute best, and that's why you're seeing a lot of players uh, that are going to do the run up. Uh, some a lot of guys are playing three weeks in a row. The Irish Open is this week. Next week is the Scottish. The week after is the Open Championship. Um, there's a number of players that are playing all three, and most of the top players are playing Scottish Open now. Uh, Tiger isn't, of course, but um, you're going to see a lot of guys playing the Scottish because you have to adapt to not having the target, uh, you know, be something where you're going to fly the ball to the target and see it stop there. Um, the, the target is almost never the hole, and uh, you have to learn how to play the ball along the ground. So I love the Europeans there. I, I look at this open, and I see McElroy, of course, because he grew up there. Uh, but there's a number of players that we haven't heard uh, a lot about in the majors that I've expected to do better that haven't. One guy that's kind of got my attention is John Rahm. Um, I think this is the style of golf that he could do really well at, and uh, I, I think he's due to break through in one of these majors, uh, and it just might it might be uh, Rahm's week. Well, let's talk about uh, NBC. Gosh, you, you've been you've been with them since I was, you know, I won't I won't say how long. Probably what close to thirty years now working with them and and on the golf and and whatnot. And my question is, how, how did that transition come as you were head golf professional to a broadcaster? And what's maybe one of the more difficult things about learning that craft to make it come off effortless when you are you know doing analysis on the golf course or up in the tower and. How did that whole thing sort of come about and, and, you know, gosh, you've made a great career out of it for a long period of time. Well, thank you. First of all, uh, it was an absolute fluke. As I said before, um, it was literally because of one shot I hit, 
uh, in a tournament at Kapalua. We had started a postseason event there uh, back in the early 80s, and I played every year. I was still playing a little bit of competitive golf there, tournaments around Hawaii, and I'd won a few and still could play fairly well. And, and I played in that tournament every year, and, and I won a car uh, at the 17th hole in 1985 on NBC was televising it. And um, they brought me up to the booth and um, it was kind of a joke because Lee Trevino was the analyst and he didn't think I was that good. He was giving me a hard time. And we ended up having a pretty good banter back and forth in the booth. So this is 85. It's almost, uh, I guess it's seven or eight years after I quit playing literally competitively. And, um, and, they invited me to come back the next day and said, why don't you come back and do a little guest spot in the booth? You're the local guy and stuff. And, and so I did the next day. And before you know it, they offered me a tryout the next week at the world cup on ESPN, uh, in Palm Springs. That would have been the, the end of 1986. And, uh, I went there and did it and, uh, got offered a job at ESPN and, uh, the rest was history. I worked there two years and then I was on to NBC. And you have to remember that back then, Jason, there was no Gary McCord. There was no David Faraday. Um, I, I really was skeptical as to whether people would, you know, pay any attention to what I said at all. Why would they believe what Mark Rolfing was saying, given, you know, his record, uh, my, my, you know, Lincoln Highway victory or you know, Maui Open or Hawaii Assistant Professionals Championship or whatever I had won, those things didn't stack up very well against a lot of other people who were trying to break into the business. But somehow, I guess I had a knack of communicating and I was just kind of in the right place at the right time. And um, here I am and it's 33 years later, believe it or not, it's my 33rd year. So I was 13 years old when you were, yeah. So yeah, we've been watching <laughs> TV for a long time. It, was it difficult or did it come pretty easy to you to have a producer in your ear and then trying to, you know, not talk too much, but not say too little like that, that I think it's got to be a difficult thing to make it look for like a better word, effortless. Yeah. The three most difficult things for me is I tended to talk too much at first. You, you only have a finite amount of time. Uh, the second thing was when I, I started out as an on-course commentator, and when I'm out there, I do not have a monitor with me. So I know what I'm seeing, but I don't know what the viewer is seeing. And I wasn't able to sort of picture in my mind what the director would be showing. Or, you know, I, I might be going off about talking about a guy's grip uh, when, in fact, the story was his ball was buried in a bunker, you know, and they're showing the lie, and I'm talking about his grip or something. So it took me a while to adjust to knowing what was on the screen. But the biggest thing by far that I think you're alluding to, Jason, with the producer in your ear, is that you have to be able to communicate and talk while you're listening at the same time. And I think more than anything, that's what allowed me to become um, pretty proficient at this because I, I learned how to listen. And I tell this especially young people all the time when I'm doing either seminars or engagements with, with kids that are in communications or, you know, even when people ask about how, how do I become a TV guy? You know, the single most important thing is learning how to listen. And that's kind of the way it is in life. Learn, you know, listening is way more important than talking. That's for sure. Well, I, you had some interesting characters in your, your years at NBC. So I'm going to give you, if it's all right, a, a few of the guys' names and give me your quick thoughts on, on each one of these guys. Cause, and these are guys who I loved watching over the years. So I'd love to hear your, your take on it. So, uh, Gary Coke. Elegant. Hardest, hardest preparer I have ever seen. Knowledgeable. Reliable never makes a mistake. And I still believe Gary Koch, I played a lot of golf with him in my early years on NBC when we were only televising on the weekends. Uh, I still believe he's top five best putters I've seen ever. I had him on the podcast. I was fortunate enough. He, it was a fascinating conversation. His, yeah, he's, he is he's a great so man. smart. Yeah. And it's such, I mean, he's got such depth, right. From his playing experience to the TV. I mean, he's seen everything. He was great. Um, yeah. Roger Mulpey. Captain Morale. We call him Captain Morale. If anybody's down in the dumps, it won't take long for uh, for Raj to cheer him up. 
Um, let's see, Faraday has kind of renamed him the Silver Stallion. So we call him Stallion a little bit more now than Captain Morale. But I just loved his style. Um, you know, just watching him work as opposed to me, you know, particularly in the early years, I walked everywhere. I was running up and down the course and, and here's Rod riding in the cart, you know, just he'd get in the cart, ride, get out, walk out, find out how far it was, announce the shot, go back, get in the cart, and then maybe have a cigarette over on the side. And <laughs> it was just so perfect multi. Um, I, I just, I love the guy to death. I just, I, I hope he never retires. He's cutting back a little bit right now, but um, he's he is a classic, that guy. Bob Murphy. Oh, boy. Murph, he taught me a lot. I, I love Murph. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, somehow Murph got kind of squeezed out as a younger generation of announcers kind of came into NBC. He was just a little bit too early uh, in his career uh, to catch the Golf Channel. Had the Golf Channel been a big force when Murph was around, I think he would have ended up maybe on Champions Tour Golf or something like that. So I hated to see him leave the NBC team, but boy, oh boy, um, he was just, he was, had a tremendous sense of humor, just a real gentleman, and Gail Murphy, oh, Bob's wife, what a, we just loved her. She was like, um, she was like a sister to all of us in a lot of ways. And man, he could play too, couldn't he? He went out on the Champions Tour and well, he had about a yeah, five he was a great run. He, I, I don't think he was as good as Gary Coke, but he he was darn near as good. He Murph could uh, fill it up. Johnny Miller, no filter. Um, I've never seen a guy in my life that uh, does not filter. You know what's going on in his brain before it comes out of his mouth. How he didn't say something that ended his career. You know, in those thirty years, I have no idea. Because uh, he could get right to the edge on stuff and somehow, you know, pull out of the nose dive and be okay. Uh, but he he had absolutely no filter. He had and has the best eye I have seen yet for analyzing the game. He wasn't quite as flamboyant an announcer uh, as some, but he is the best at analyzing a swing before he knows where the ball goes. A lot of announcers you will hear, other commentators, analyze a swing after they've seen the shot that's a big slice to the right, now they're going to show you why it's sliced. That is not that difficult to do. It's, it's, it's certainly an art, and communicating is, is uh, important, and the guys that do it now are the absolute best in the business. But still, it's more difficult to analyze a swing and say where the ball went before you know where it went, and Johnny could do that. The replacement, Mr. Azinger, um, of taking the tower and uh, being lead analyst. What's, uh, what's your thoughts of having Zinger in the booth? Well, re- re- really close, and he's got a wife, Tony, just like Gail Murphy. We love Tony to death. Um, Debbie Rolfing, my wife, and her are dear, dear friends, and so uh, they'll be traveling together some. But I, I love Paul. Um, I don't know. I, it's a little bittersweet for me because I still wish that Paul Azinger would be a Ryder Cup captain again. I don't understand it. I don't know what really caused the falling out uh, with Azinger and the PGA of America. They just are not chummy chummy anymore. And uh, I think he did a lot for that Ryder Cup and, and probably still could do a lot for the for the American Ryder Cup. And I just wish he was part of the Ryder Cup family, but he's not. Um, so now he's our lead analyst, and it's great. The, the more I, I work with him, the more I really appreciate how good he is. As you've seen, I've transitioned a lot into the studio now, so I'm about half live golf and half studio, and I would love to see Azinger do a little more studio work. We did some at the Masters together, but um, he mostly is live golf, but he's just a brilliant analyst and, and really has some tremendous thoughts. Uh, fun to work with, enthusiastic. He wanted the job really badly. He wants to work as many tournaments as he can. I, I just, I love his attitude. What stories maybe on the PGA Tour this season, besides, you know, Tiger winning the Masters, and I agree with you, next to Hogan's probably the greatest golf story ever, of, you know, coming back to, to, to win that. But what, what other stories do you find interesting this year or trend lines or things that 
you're sort of done some research on or kind of piques your interest as you're doing your, your homework as you go into, you know, prepping for tournaments? I love the game so much, and, and I'm getting just old enough that I tend to think about what happened last week uh, rather than what happened last month or, you know, you know, six months ago. The Nate Lashley story is amazing to me, and it really hit home for me uh, because uh, my father was killed in a plane crash at Miggs Field there in Chicago, which is no longer an airstrip, um, uh, just down uh, south of the loop there. Um, and uh, to to go through what Nate went through, uh, to have both his mom and dad and girlfriend uh, perish in a, in a um, uh, airplane accident after having watched him play college golf, um, you know, I don't know how after 15 years he was able to muster up the strength and energy to keep going and, and keep playing. He had bounced around from tour to tour and to come out and beat these guys, these young guys, uh, and beat them the way he did. To me, that's just just a phenomenal story. It really is. Uh, I love the Gary Woodland story. I, you know, I have a great relationship with a lot of these players, and I think that's really helped me in my career. But I've gotten to know Gary quite well, and he had a tragedy in his life a couple of years ago, losing uh, one of his twins uh, prior to childbirth um, in, with a medical complication. Um, and that was a really difficult thing for him to overcome. And he he was uh, he struggled for quite a while with that. And now he comes out and um, just blisters Pebble Beach and, and puts it to him and wins the U.S. Open. Um, that's the great thing about golf. Um Again, it's a microcosm of life, and golfers are real people. So the stories I tend to like are the ones that have a real personal touch to them. The other question I was going to ask you, because you've seen so much, is you always hear this thing that the, the new generation of players is better than the previous generation. They probably said that about the guys in the 90s from the guys in the 70s, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do you actually believe, taking away the equipment and how much easier it is to, to hit the golf ball at that level, are the players – better today than they were from previous generations or or do you think that's a you know a not a true statement as you've seen the greats from you know quite a few generations at this point up close i'd, I'd say they're better in one aspect they're better conditioned um they're they're, they're better trained uh they're better physically and um you know that can make a big difference we've seen that but to me the thing that has really changed the game more than anything else is the technology and uh if you take a look at the way these guys swing um and and you see a player like justin thomas for example that somehow has figured out how at his height and stature and his weight to hit the ball the way he does by creating absolutely the optimum launch angle by getting up on his toes and pushing off the ground and launching these incredible drives um, that's where the game has really changed. Um, are they are they any more talented than players back in my era? No. Are they better shot makers? No. Are they better putters? And yeah, maybe they're better putters statistically because the greens are in better condition. Right. You know, right, right, right. thirty years ago when I was going over to the Open, uh, you, we'd be putting at Portrush on greens that ran eight or nine on the sip meter. Maybe you just couldn't hold nearly as many putts as they'll be making in two weeks. So it's really hard to judge and compare the two. Uh, but I, are they better? I, I don't necessarily think they're better. I think they're better conditioned and the equipment's better. Do you miss watching the old game a little bit more where it wasn't just, for the most part, power, where they were carving in five irons from 183? And was it was it prettier? Did, did you miss Do you miss the shot-making uh, ability that a Raymond Floyd had or a Trevino had compared to the power these guys have today? I do. I miss it a lot. Uh, you know, curving the ball is, is such a, a, um, a precise business, and it's something that, you know, you, you simply aren't born, I don't believe, with the talent, um, you know, to curve a golf ball. You, you're born with strength, and you're born with good hand-eye coordination, but learning how to, to manufacture shots like that uh, I, I miss seeing that now. Um, do, do, is the game not as good off because of that? I don't think so. It's definitely a power game now. Um, I just, I don't like the way week in and week out the courses are set up on the PGA tour. I really, 
think that, you know, driving accuracy is just a ludicrous stat. They might as well not even keep it anymore. It has no relevance whatsoever on the PGA Tour. Uh, you know, you look down at the leading money winners and FedEx Cup point winners, you know, none of them are ever in the top 100, really, of driving accuracy, but they're all in the top 10 or 20 of driving distance. So I, I miss that aspect of it. And I think some of that could be brought back. I'm hoping they're going to start doing that at the U.S. Open, for example. Um, and uh, I, I really think that that's the only way that we can keep, um, you know, this game from kind of getting out of control and becoming nothing but a power game. If it, if it keeps going in the direction it's going, uh, you know, I'm just worried that so many of our venues are going to be obsolete. Yeah, and you're not going to be able to, I mean, does eventually Pebble Beach become irrelevant because – you know, in 20 more years, right? There's not a whole lot of land you can use around there. And if the golf course gets too short, sort of like Chicago Golf Club, you know, couldn't host a, a, a men's event here in Chicagoland. I would hate to see these iconic classic golf courses not be used because they're just pitching putts for the modern game, right? I think that's the part I hope. I hope they can sort of find the balance of, yeah, everyone likes to see the ball go far, but not have some of these iconic clubs not be able to be used for, you know, golfers of the highest level. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm totally with you. Uh, it, it's interesting to me. I've never heard an amateur golfer, I can't think of one, ever say to me, you know, I'm hitting the ball too far. Darn it, I'm not having any fun. I'm going to quit. Uh, you just don't hear that. Uh, but it, when I look at the at the championship game and the game at its highest level now, uh, and and I see us doing things like, and, and I think Aaron Hills was a was a really great venue for the U.S. Open. But I hate seeing us go to a place like Aaron Hills uh, for a U.S. Open instead of, uh, you know, somewhere in Chicago where the U.S. Open should be. We've had 13 of them. There should be another U.S. Open in Chicago. And to me, I, I hate seeing that the game has changed so much in terms of the actual playing and the holes themselves. But more importantly, in terms of how big a site you have to see or have to have to have merchandise tents and everything else to have a U.S. Open. Uh, I would hate to see it where the U.S. Open can't go to a place like Chicago anymore. It's got to go to southern Wisconsin because there's more space up there. I agree with you. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be an interesting debate to see where it, does it eventually become a bifurcation of rules or how do they eventually address it, right? Because you don't want to kill the amateur game either by making everyone's driver go 30 yards less. But you know, it's gonna... uh, yeah, I, I'm a bifurcation guy, Jason. I will. I'll tell you this. I mean, just take a look at at sports for for kids. You know, as they grow up through a game like football. You know, the say the football Tom Brady is throwing is not the same football that he threw when he was playing Pop Warner. That was a tiny one, and and then he went to high school football and it got a little bigger. He went to college and it got a little bigger. Um, there's nothing at all wrong with bifurcation, especially when it comes to the equipment. Um, and to me, that's, that is an absolute must. That, that's really the next thing that the RNA and USGA, I think, needs to do is look seriously at bifurcation. I, I would have no objection to it. I think it would be the easiest way to go. Like you said, they, they do that in Major League Baseball. That's another example, right? Where in college, they can use different bats. At the pro level, you got to use a wooden bat with a, you know, smaller sweet spot and it doesn't seem to affect the professional game of people not tuning into it so i i think thousand percent that would be the way to go and it doesn't hurt the amateurs playing in the sport and making it harder yet it brings back maybe some shot making ability and have these classic courses that we've seen for years being played that the guys can still play on it i think it's kind of solves both problems if they'd ever go that direction to be yeah seen. i don't i don't mind seeing the longer hitters have an advantage i think that's okay they should if they if they can figure out how to harness their power and hit it straight enough. But I just don't like seeing shorter players, um, you know, have the game pass them by. Justin Leonard, who I work with a lot now, um, I played with him a year ago up at um, Friars Head on Long Island when the U.S. Open was at Shinnecock. And I was just amazed at how good he can still play. And yet here he has basically given the game up competitively to go into the broadcast booth because he felt like the game had passed him by. I, I really think um, it's kind of too bad if if the game passes by a player like that. I, I'd like to still see that kind of player be somewhat competitive. 
Well, I got a couple, two or three here, and then uh, we'll, we'll get you back to uh, back to uh, looking at the ocean, hopefully here. So I've got a couple questions, and they're quick hitters, and then, uh, like I said, we'll get you out of here. And I really appreciate your time today, Ralph. I really do. Um, two or three best golf courses architecturally you've ever got to play around the world, and, and what makes those courses so spectacular? Well, I think um, I think St Andrews is probably the greatest golf course in the world. Um, I, I really do. I, you know, I've seen it play a number of different ways over the years. Um, you know, I witnessed uh, John Daly. Uh, you know, if you'd have told me back in 1985 that 10 years later John Daly was going to win the Open Championship at St Andrews, I would have looked at you like uh, you were crazy. Uh, but you know, that kind of course that really doesn't favor any particular. Uh, kind of player and I just I, I love the requirements that St. Andrews puts on uh, golfer regardless of what your skill level is I I love Augusta National you know I watched Augusta National go from what was an iconic course I think to a course that was almost unplayable in a lot of ways when they tried to tiger proof it back in the early 2000s and to the Augusta National's credit they realized they had made a mistake and they were losing the birdie fests and roars on Sunday that they had, and they had made the holes too hard, and and uh, they basically geared it back. And, and now they've got a perfect combination. Uh, we think of aesthetics at Augusta, and that's all we hear about, uh, but the shot values at Augusta are really very, very good, very, very high. There's a golf course that I was uh, part of, fortunately, um, with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw back in the early 90s, out in the middle of Nebraska called Sand Hills, uh, which I believe may have the best shot values of any course I've ever seen. Uh, and I think if it were on either course, on either coast, East Coast or West Coast, Sand Hills might be a top five in America course. It's 10th now. Uh, I love, I love Sand Hills for that uh, reason. And then as I left Chicago and before I ended up out in Hawaii, I stopped in Northern California for a few years. And that's really where my heart uh, in sort of seeing golf course architecture and, and seeing the way holes were built and how they were played and put together. That's where it started. So I, you know, I'd love Cypress point. That's maybe my favorite golf course in the world. Uh, Passive tempo 50 miles up the coast is darn close. Uh, I, I love the golf courses in uh, Northern California, San Francisco golf is just phenomenal. Uh, but my heart's still in Chicago. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to Shore Acres. I, I'm a Shore Acres guy through and through. I love Shore Acres after the redo, you know, widening it out a little bit and bringing some of the Seth Rayner originality back to that golf course. I love Shore Acres. I, the routing that Rayner did on that property is just absolutely phenomenal of how good that golf course is. I, I could play that one every day of my life. It's, it's so yep, good. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's funny you say that about the Sandhills. I'm leaving to head out there to that region tomorrow to Dismal River. So Sandhills is my favorite golf course in the world. If I could, I, I thought it blew me away the first time I ever played. I, I It changed the way I thought about golf courses and the love of Lynx golf. And I just thought that the architecture that, that Core Crenshaw created out there was just it's phenomenal. It's, it's okay. Can nowhere, I say but... to the listeners, Jason, can I tell everybody we did not uh, plan this? When I said Sand Hills, I had no idea whether you even knew what it was or had been out there and played. I'm so happy I to hear it. you played it. But, um, yeah, anybody, if you ever, ever get a chance to play Sand Hills, do it. Or, like I said, I'm a member at Dismal, what, what, what Mr. Nicholas did and um, Tom Doak did out at Dismal River, which is, what, about four, I mean, 20-minute drive, but it's about four or five miles away. I mean, those two courses there, too, I don't know if you've played them yet, they're just fantastic. I mean, it's just I have. I, I like, I, I, you know, I love it. I, I just think, um, you know, we've got a lot of areas like that in America, and that's where you're going to start seeing, you already are, a trend of, of uh, people figuring out a way. You know, Sand Hills, um, <laughs> we literally, here's one for you, we spent more money on the Let's see. We spent more money on the cart paths at the plantation course at Kapalua, just the cart paths, than we did on the golf course and the clubhouse at Sandhills. Uh, you know, it's just very cheap when you build in a sand-based area like that. And, uh, 
there, therefore, golf can become affordable. It's still only $75 a year for residents of Hooker County, Nebraska, to play Sand Hills. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, you don't have to move. I mean, I imagine you guys hardly sculpt, sculpted any of the, I mean, the holes were just there, right? I mean, minor modifications and knock some sand down and build a green, and there you have it, right? I mean, that's the oh, beauty almost of it. Built it no so bunker. Yeah, yeah, we almost just... built no bunkers. Um, and, yeah, the I think the first routing had 116 holes on it that uh, Bill Core did, and they were going all kinds of different directions. You could have started anywhere and finished anywhere there, literally. Was that the hardest part of trying to pick the best 18? Well, the hardest part for me was trying to figure out where the hotel was going until they finally convinced me that we weren't going to be building any hotels there. That was all I knew. You know, I knew Hawaii, and I thought, wow, this would be great. Let's put a hotel here. Uh, Obviously, I'm glad they talked me out of that. Uh, Mr. Young's cap said that we're not doing that, right? <laughs> you can get right back in that car and go right back to where you came from. Yeah, there's not going to be a hotel at Mr. Young Cap's uh, club out there. It's it's like I said, if in, in I always, you know, Prairie Club and Valentine is phenomenal. Like if if you love Lynx golf, and you know, I tell people look at me like I'm half crazy, like going out to Nebraska to golf, and they, I think most people think it looks like Route 80 when you're you know driving to Lincoln, and I'm like, no, up in the Panhandle, it's all sand. And, like, I'm crazy enough, I'll drive out to that area four to five times a year to, to play for two days and, and drive home because the golf. And everyone you bring out there is blown away, right? You can't explain it until you see it and play it and experience it. And then they all want to go back. They'll drive that 700 miles with me to do it because it's unlike anything that anyone's ever seen. And the it's the culture of the, you know, you feel like you're out west. The people are more than gracious. It's just got this vibe that just, oh, it's so good. Absolutely. Yeah, well, so I'm glad you're it. going out there. Well, enjoy. I'm jealous. I'll be out there tomorrow. Um, one last question for you, and we'll get you out of here. Now we've bonded over our love of the Sand Hill region. Um, favorite golf tournament to cover that was not that's not a major that uh, uh, maybe a little hidden gem of a city you love going to, or just this event has it downright, and it's always just a joy to to kind of go to that event and cover it. Well, that would be the Ryder Cup, but that's not a little event anymore. Um, you know, the Ryder Cup's become one of the most important golf tournaments in the entire world. I still believe the Ryder Cup at Hazeltine in 2016 was one of the greatest sporting events I'd ever seen of any kind. Uh, just the atmosphere and the way the athletes performed under the pressure, the, the whole thing was was absolutely phenomenal. Um Little, you know what's a really cool tournament, Jason, is Travelers. Hartford, Connecticut doesn't even have a hockey team anymore. It's the biggest tournament of the year. Uh, it's the biggest sporting event of the year in that entire state, I guess, probably. And um, the vibe at Travelers is just phenomenal. And they are getting better and better fields every year now. Um, I've always, I've always liked Travelers. But, you know, I'm partial to Tournament of Champions. Why? I can get up have a cup of coffee on my lanai, get in my car and drive about oh, six or 700 yards up to the clubhouse. And there I am. So my favorite tournament by far is century tournament champions. Well, Mark, thank you so much for, for spending the time with us. Uh, like I said, I was really looking forward to this conversation and it's just so cool of everything you've accomplished in, in, in golf. And, and, you know, we're also proud of you here, you know, back home in DeKalb Sycamore area. So, we're, uh, we'll be watching this year at the uh, coverage of the Open, and um, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, and I'll be out at Kish on August 26th, everybody. They've actually named a little high school tournament uh, after me there, uh, so I'm going to come back and say hello to everybody that's playing uh, in the Mark Rolfing Cup out at Kishwaukee Country Club on August 26th, and uh, keep up the good work, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you out at Kish. I appreciate it, Rolf.